Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm pulling another interview out of the archives. This time it's with Dr. Paul Reeve. We'll discuss his book, The Religion of a Different Color, as well as we'll go deep into the race ban. And he's even talking about his new book. I'm hoping to have him on in the next year or so. Hopefully it's published that soon. Um, but this comes from January of 2017. It was right before President Trump's inauguration, so I'll ask him about uh, the Tabernacle Choir singing for President Trump's inauguration and see what he thought about that. So anyway, it's an oldie but a goodie, and uh, I think you'll like it. It's the first time the entire interview has been shown in entirety because I didn't have Patreon back then, and um, didn't publish the, the whole thing. So here's our interview with Dr. Paul Reed from the University of Utah. Welcome to Gospel Tangents Podcast. I'm, I'm Rick Bennett. I'm here with uh, historian and author Paul Reeve here at the University of Utah. I appreciate you uh, allowing us to, to come and talk to you here today, Paul. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. So, uh, Paul is the author of a book, uh, Religion of a Different Color. wanted to talk a little bit about the book, first of all. But before I do that, just wondering, do you have any other books in the works right now? Uh, I'm, I'm working on a documentary history of the 1852 Utah Territorial Legislature. Oh. Uh, so it's the legislature that uh, Brigham Young speaks to, and it's the first known articulation by a prophet president of the LDS Church of a race-based priesthood restriction, and uh, it's within that context of the legislative debates taking place. Um, so uh, working with Lejeune Carruth, who has transcribed the speeches from that legislative session from their original Pittman shorthand. Some of them had never been transcribed since 1852. And um, Christopher Rich, who is a legal scholar, uh, so the three of us are working on a documentary history of that legislative session. Well, that's exciting because I actually wanted to talk to you about that uh, today as well. So we'll go into a little bit more, more history there. I did not know that. That's, that's exciting. So, Paul, you are a, let's see, as I recall, you had a recent promotion. That's right. So, can you tell us about that? So, I was promoted from associate professor to full professor uh, this academic year, so July 2016. Okay. Um, so, three levels of professors, most people aren't aware, but three levels of professors in, in academia, uh, assistant professor, associate professor, and full professor. So was promoted to full professor. All right, and you're also the director of graduate studies, I understand. That's correct. So that's a pretty, pretty time-consuming thing right now? It is time-consuming. Uh, we're in the middle of the admissions process, and so uh, we get to decide who gets admitted and who doesn't, as well as financial aid, and um, just kind of generally keeping track of graduate students. Yeah, well, I understand. I really appreciate you taking some time out for that. Yeah, it's my pleasure. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, so. Mm -hmm. uh, Religion of a Different Color, uh, it's a kind of an interesting uh, take on that. Uh, kind of the premise of the book, as I understand it, although correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, Mormons were once too white and now we're not white enough. So I kind of like to talk a little bit about the evolution of that. Um, I mean, can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So just, just to be clear, um, the exact opposite of what oh. you said. Not white enough in the 19th century, <laughs> and then by the 21st century, too white. Yes. Uh, so that's the basic arc of the trajectory of the argument for, for the book. So in the 19th century, um, 
Mormonism was actually born into a very charged racial context. And uh, even immigrants from Northern and Western Europe were being racialized as not fully white. Uh, so there was a racial hierarchy that animated 19th century thought about where people fit in. And Anglo-Saxons were at the top of that hierarchy. And then uh, like Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants were seen as less than fully white, somewhere down that racial ladder. And then obviously you have Native Americans, Asians, um, African Americans uh, at the bottom of the racial ladder. And 19th century observers were trying to figure out where to situate Mormons. Uh, so the argument of the book is that they weren't merely religiously suspect, but also racially suspect. So you had medical doctors who uh, actually argued that Mormonism, Mormon polygamy in particular, was giving rise to a new race, a degraded, sunken, degenerate race, uh, and therefore Mormons in their bodies were um, denigrated as not white. And really, if you take the uh, argument to the extent that it's taken in the 19th century, um, what's at stake in the minds of outside observers is American democracy because John C. Calhoun says on the floor of the United States Senate, democracy is the government of a white race. And the fear was that in practicing polygamy, as well as giving their free will over to the despots Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, as outsiders viewed it, then Mormons were actually uh, reverting away from civilization, backward into barbarism and into savagery. And therefore, democracy is at stake. I think that's a, a kind of a strange thing for us to think about, that Italians were a different race or Europeans were a different race. Um, how, I mean, how did they come about these ideas? Yeah, well, I, um, <clears throat> that's a really good question, and I think that's what's really important to keep in mind is that uh, it's a very fluid and illogical racial context in the 19th century. Uh, so you have a variety of different thinkers kind of suggesting ideas about what race means. And in the 19th century, um, nation also could equal race. So the Irish race was commonly referred to in the 19th century. Celts, uh, you know, different, what we would consider ethnic groups today were considered different racial groups. Uh, and thinkers in the 19th century are simply trying to make sense of these various groups of people and try to create a racial hierarchy. And in their minds, whiteness equals freedom, blackness equals slavery, and then you have this gradation uh, in between. And where do you situate everyone else? And that helps you to determine how they're treated. Access to political, social, and economic power are bound up in where you're situated on this racial hierarchy. And so when Mormons, uh, <clears throat> the racialization for Mormons starts before they are openly practicing polygamy, but polygamy gives, gives it simply a new life. And especially after Mormons openly practice polygamy, um, the argument is that we have this fearful decline away from civilization backwards into barbarism. So the development theory is in operation in the 19th century. Uh, it simply <coughs> posited that all societies go through three basic phases. They develop from savagery into barbarism, and then from barbarism into civilization. 
And once you arrive at civilization, um, you have shed the markers of barbarism or savagery. And a couple of those markers were polygamy and adherence to despotic rule. And with the Mormons, the fear was these are people who might look white, right? But they're not behaving in the way that white people are supposed to behave. They are practicing polygamy and giving their free will over to despots. And therefore, the fear was you have this slippage backwards from civilization back into barbarism and in, into savagery. So it seems like they're kind of combining kind of sociology with race uh, and creating creating a kind of a a strange definition. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, I mean, people are sort of just casting about trying to figure out what it means to be white or less than white, what it means to be black, what it means to be Native American. Uh, Religious thinkers had um, long looked to the Bible to try to understand where the races came from, and they would look to Noah's sons after the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and argue that those three sons give rise to Europeans, uh, Africans, and Asians, like three major groups. But um, you have uh, what we would consider pseudoscientists today, but in the 19th century, people who are arguing that, in fact, uh, there was more than one genesis or more than one origin, that the races were so distinct, black and white were so distinct, that there must have been separate species. It's called the polygenesis theory, more than one genesis. Um, Religious thinkers rejected it because they saw it as an attack against the Bible. The Bible only talks about one creation. And the polygenesis theory suggests there must have been more than one creation giving rise to separate races that were so distinct that they uh, were different species. Um, So religious thinkers rejected that because they said it attacks the Bible. So Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, for example, rejected Um, the argument of the polygenesis. They said that we all come from one origin, right? But then, um, especially with Brigham Young, he'll start to argue that how do you account for blackness? Well, he uses the curse of Cain in the Bible that predates even the founding of Mormonism by a thousand years. That's part of the broader Judeo-Christian tradition that's traceable to uh, the Old Testament. Okay, well that actually brings up a few questions. So as far as so Brigham Young, I so he go he he pushes it back instead of the curse of Ham, he pushes it a thousand years beyond to the curse of Cain. Um, wow, I hadn't realized that. that. That's kind of an interesting. So that's that's kind of a development that Brigham Young did that most Protestants didn't do. They would have just referred to the curse of Ham. Well, um, both of them are in operation. So the curse of Cain predates Mormonism as well. So that's um, so. Um, Genesis says God put a mark on, on Cain and his descendants, and um, the idea that that mark was black skin um, predates Mormonism by a, a thousand years. Like the earliest sort of references are um, Jewish scribes, uh, and it becomes a part of the broader Judeo-Christian tradition that's passed down um, in the West over, you know. Uh, almost a thousand years uh, and it's in existence before Mormonism is even founded. There's a black slave, uh, I think he's writing in 1828 or 29, he writes a narrative uh, and he says, you know, white people um, are just ready to tell me that I am the descendant of Cain and I'm cursed. Um, And that's 
you know, a couple of years before Mormonism is founded in 1830. So, oh, wow. um, and like I said, um, there have been some studies of those notions in the broader Ju Judeo-Christian tradition, um, looking way back in um, the European history, um, sort of the Jewish glosses on, on the Bible, and they are the ones who are suggesting that the mark that God put on uh, Cain and his descendants was black skin. And so it becomes a part of this broader Christian, hmm. Judeo-Christian tradition that Brigham Young and Joseph Smith would have been immersed in. Um, uh, Joseph Smith does talk about the curse of Ham, but it is really Brigham Young that gives life to the curse of Cain and associates it with a priesthood restriction. Oh, that's really interesting. Wanted to uh, just loop back around and talk a little bit about this polygenesis theory. Um, that was kind of interesting to me. So going back to that, essentially they were saying there was a white Adam and Eve, a black Adam and Eve, an Asian Adam and Eve, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, where would they get the Irish Adam and Eve? Or, you know, some of these other, these other race things don't really make a lot of sense. Huh? <laughs> yeah, they hadn't fully kind of worked that out. And sort of the polygenesis group, uh, mostly um, black versus white, right? Um, but suggesting that the races are so distinct that there must have been separate origins, separate creations. Um, you know, um, it's just simply their effort at trying to account for the distinction between the races. Um, and like I said, uh, religious thinkers reject it because they see it as an attack on the Bible and the creation narrative in the Bible. Hmm, that's interesting. So I remember in one of your uh, presentations at the Mormon History Association, you talked about some pseudosciences, physiognomy, I think, where you could look at a Mormon and he had beady eyes and you could know that he was a Mormon or something like that. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So... Um, Physiognomy as well as phrenology um, are two pseudosciences in the 19th century, and uh, both of them turn their attention to the Mormons. Um, so physiognomy is, is uh, this notion that you can read a person's character traits through his or her face. Um, and one of the ways in which they attempted to read the Mormon face was through the eyes. They said um, they actually used an illustration of Brigham Young to suggest that he had polyerotic eyes versus um, Margaret Fuller Ossley, who is a 19th century uh, feminist who um, was so devoted, the story goes, to her lover that um, when their ship sinks, uh, she had a chance to save herself but would rather drown with her lover than um, live without him. So that's the um, example of monoerotic eyes. So the illustration in the book is... Um, of her eyes in comparison to Brigham Young's eyes, and she had really wide, round eyes uh, like a dove that mates for life. Brigham Young had eyes, um, at least in the depiction, right? It's just an artist drawing, but has eyes that are very um, narrow and kind of closed, and those were deemed polyerotic eyes, similar to a hog which mates with whoever it wants to. Um, and so those were the ways in which there was an effort at reading Mormon faces. Uh, and then phrenologists also um, kind of played up uh, the distinctions amongst Mormons. Um, Bru Joseph Smith had his uh, school read by phrenologists and other Mormon leaders did as well. And the suggestion was that there's something distinct that sets Mormons apart. Um, <clears throat> it's physical not just religious, in other words, right? Um, and it's really by the 1840s that outsiders are referring to a Mormon race. 
and you have medical doctors who visit Utah Territory who suggest that there is a new race um, emerging out of the Great Basin. There's actually a conference held at the New Orleans Academy of Sciences in 1860 where uh, they actually, medical doctors gather and they have a conference about the supposed new race that's emerging in the Great Basin. All the doctors present at the conference buy the argument and actually push it, push it forward except for one. One doctor argues against that. He simply says, look, it's only been 30 years since this religion has been around. We should really um, engage in an empirical study for 30 more years before we can conclusively say that Mormonism is giving rise to a new race. Everyone else just simply said, yeah, polygamy, uh, because it's degraded, uh, is producing degraded offspring, and therefore um, a new race is emerging in the Great Basin. They actually argue that um, Mormonism would solve itself if we, the United States could stem the tide of outside converts, converts from Europe that it would produce a uh, sterility in the next generation because it's degraded um, the next generation uh, within a few generations the men are going to become sterile and it will die out of its own force if they could simply stop immigrants from coming in from Europe and bringing new blood in um, that would perpetuate the problem much further into the future Wow. Yeah. These are some strange ideas. <laughs> they are very strange ideas. It makes you wonder whether there are strange ideas that in a hundred years people will go, I can't believe they thought that. Exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I have heard uh, uh, the thought that, you know, there are some people that say, well, you know, black, white DNA, it's 96 or 98% exactly the same, and race is a race should be a sociological term. Even today they say that instead of a, uh, uh, a you know, say there's some sort of a physical difference. I mean, yeah, you've got black skin, white skin, I guess yellow skin in, in, with Asians. But um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Is, is that something that we should, we should just do away with race declarations altogether? Or, or what do you think? Well, I, I think um, one of the conclusions for the book is, right, if you can racialize Mormons, then you can racialize anyone. Um, and it really points to the fact that race is not a biological reality. It's a social construct. So in other words, we've used it in society to differentiate between different groups, right? And it's important just to simply understand that. I don't know that we'll ever get rid of its sociological function, but it's important to understand that it's not a biological reality, like you mentioned, right? Like the bulk of our DNA is actually uh, the same. Uh, uh, black people have more melanin in their skin end of story. That's it, right? And um, from DNA studies, we actually all are Africans. I mean, that's one of the conclusions that DNA has taught us is that origin of man comes from Africa. Um, and so really we all start um, from Africa and, you know, it's, it's sort of evolutionary biology after that in terms of where people spread and exposure to the sun, um, lighter skin versus darker skin. Um, and so any notion that there is a bio biological distinction is, is, is completely false. It, race dysfunctions um, as a social construct. And I think the book sort of bears that out. If white people, people who are predominantly white, 
um, like Mormons in the 19th century can be viewed or constructed, imagined as a completely different race, it just points to the lie of race as anything but a social construct. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of my background. I actually uh, have a master's degree in statistics. Uh, from here, from the University of Utah, a Utah hey, man I am. Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, in some of my epidemiology classes that I've had, they've said that there, there are always three variables you should always consider in any study, um, sex, race, and age. Um, because generally there are differences between, between all three of those. You know, older people are different than younger people, men, or women, men are different than women, and, uh, and we always include race. There, all, there does seem to be some issues, uh, with, and I don't know if those are sociological or physical. Um, you know, for example, uh, uh, blacks uh, generally do not survive heart attacks as well as whites. Now, the question is why? Is there something biological about blacks that that is the case? Or is it more an issue of blacks have worse insurance? And it's more of, race is more of a placeholder for economic status. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of interesting, because um, I don't know that anybody's ever been able to answer that, but uh, from an epidemiological point of view, we always want to keep that in there, because it, it, it means something. Sure. Whether it's biological or sociological or economic, you know, that, that's subject to debate, but, but that's something that's very important, I know, in medical studies. So. Sure. Yeah, so, um, you know, when I, when I talk about it as, as a social construct, right, um, um, talking about it as the way in which it functions in society in terms of um, access to political, social, economic power, um, and in those ways, right, it's the way that we have constructed um, you're not worthy of citizenship in the United States because your skin color is different than mine. The very first Congress, um, 1890, establishes conditions for how you can naturalize as a citizen, and you have to be free and white. That's a social construct regarding race, right? That somehow um, people who are less than white are incapable of democracy. That's the argument that Congress is making. It's the argu argument that the Supreme Court makes. In those kind of ways, race is functioning to distinguish between white and black and actually elevate white over black uh, and disadvantage one group over the other only out of the social construct, not out of any biological fact that black people are incapable of democracy. Hmm. Very interesting. All right, well, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, I really appreciate your, your uh, comments there uh, talking about race, especially as a sociological uh, position. Let's talk a little bit about Mormons. You know, we, once we were, um, we were not white enough, that's uh, the case, I guess our Irish gray, I don't, I don't know how that works. <laughs> but but um, so let's talk a little bit about Missouri. Um, I believe it was W.W. Phelps back in 1832, if my memory is correct, uh, there was an article in the newspaper. You could probably tell me what it is. Yeah, the Free Messenger and Advocate. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that caused a lot of stir. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Sure. So uh, Phelps publishes an article um, titled Free People of Color uh, in Jackson County, Missouri. Uh, and it simply is an announcement. Um, it's after Jackson County has been defined by Joseph Smith as the gathering place, as the New Zion, 
Uh, and Phelps is concerned about black Latter-day Saints. So he writes this article, Free People of Color, and he simply says, look, um, if my fellow black Latter-day Saints are going to gather to Zion, Jackson County, you need to be aware that this is slave territory. And here are two um, aspects of the Missouri legal code that will govern your life if you immigrate to Missouri. Uh, he simply quotes from the legal code, uh, tells black Mormons that if they immigrate, they need to make sure they have papers substantiating their free status. Otherwise, they will be uh, subject to being whipped and expelled from the state of Missouri. And he doesn't want that to happen to his co-religionists. Uh, he says, as long as we have no special rule in this church as to people of color, let prudence guide. Just be aware that you're, if you're going to immigrate to Missouri, it's uh, a slave state, and there are going to be rules that will govern your ability to move about freely in this state, and I don't want you to run afoul of the law. So here are the sections of the legal code in Missouri that will govern your behavior. Outsiders non-Mormons in Missouri read that article and get up in arms really quickly. They suggest that the Mormons are inviting freed blacks to the state of Missouri to incite a slave rebellion. Beyond that, they also argue that they are inviting freed blacks to the state of Missouri to steal our white wives and daughters. Fear of race mixing is always bound up in uh, these charges leveled against the Mormons uh, almost from the beginning that somehow they are inciting a slave rebellion is one argument, but also race mixing was the other argument. Um, you're inviting free blacks and, and black men. There's the myth of the black beast rapist that animates white people's concerns uh, of who black people are, especially black men. All black men just simply want white women. And that charge is leveled against the Mormons. Um, before the incident uh, plays out, um, Phelps will issue uh, an extra edition where he tries to calm the fears of the Missourians. They don't buy it. They simply say, um, we don't buy anything you've said in your extra. We know really what you're intending to do. You're intending to invite blacks here to uh, start a, a race riot. Uh, they will attack his printing office. They'll scatter his press into the street. His printing office in his home was the same basic building. Uh, they destroy it. They completely level it. Uh, they drag uh, two men, uh, Bishop James Allen um, and another man, into the town square and tar and feather them. Bishop Partridge, I believe. Bishop Partridge, there you go. Uh, James Allen and, and Bishop Partridge, that's right. Um, and that begins the expulsion of the Mormons from Jackson County. Wow. So Mormons were, you know, we really have a complicated history. Um, let's talk a little bit about Kirtland. Um, one of the interesting things to me was Mormons, sounds like, tried to walk this really thin line where they were against slavery, but they were also against the abolitionist movement. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So it's really important to um, have maybe a more nuanced understanding of what it meant to be an abolitionist in the 19th century. So there are various degrees of being a member of an anti-slavery institution in the um, antebellum period. So uh, the majority position is um, a colonizationist position. So in, in the minds of the white majority uh, that were against slavery, uh, 
slavery presented a twofold problem. It presented a problem because it violated the founding principles articulated in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and this sense of freedom. We shouldn't enslave anyone. So it's a, it, it's a problem because we have an unfree population. But the second part of the problem is a racial problem. Just because they're against slavery doesn't mean that they are in favor of racial equality. They're simply against slavery, and then once you free the slaves, what do you do with them? You certainly don't want them moving north and living amongst white people. Once again, fear that they're going to engage in race mixing. So the majority position it favors actually sending the free black population to Africa. And it's called the colonizationist position. Uh, 1830, you have um, a radical new group of uh, immediate abolitionists who start to argue. William Lloyd Garrison is leading this group. Uh, he, he founds the Liberator, a newspaper where he starts to argue for immediate abolitionism and full racial equality. And this will touch off anti-abolitionist riots across the North. Uh, because the white majority, once again, uh, doesn't want black people living amongst them. They may be against slavery, but they are not uh, in favor of full racial equality. And so um, that's kind of the difficult racial waters that Mormonism finds itself immersed in. And when Mormons are labeled as abolitionists who are in favor of amalgamation, amalgamation is the pre-Civil War term for race mixing, then Joseph Smith finds it politically expedient to speak out against the immediate abolitionists and amalgamation, race mixing. Okay? And he does so in 1836 in this very charged racial context where Mormons have already been expelled from Jackson County because of the fear that they are inciting the slave rebellion and uh, in favor of race mixing. So he speaks uh, um, uh, in 1836, uh, he speaks out against the abolitionists, the immediate abolitionists, and against race mixing as well. But it's important to immerse it within that broader context for it to make sense. So I'm trying to see if we could come up with maybe a modern-day equivalent. Um, you know, abortion seems to be kind of a hot-button issue. You've got abortion bombers on the one side, and then you've got pro-life people on the other side. You know, women should be able to have an abortion anytime they want. I do believe that the church, even today, once again, is trying to walk a little bit of a middle line um, in the fact that, well, we'll allow uh, abortion in the case of a rape or, or to save the life of a mother. I mean, would you say that that's kind of a, a similar you know, thing as what the church was trying to do back in the 1830s and 40s? Yeah, I mean, that might, that might um, uh, work as an analogy. I mean, so if you go with the church's position on abortion in the 21st century, abortion has to be legal for its position to be valid, right? Um, they simply would like to restrict it to uh, rape, incest, or the health of the mother, but nonetheless have to be legal for that to happen, right? And so um, marking out um, more of a middle ground, um, probably more to the right of the middle ground, but more of a middle ground um, amongst those uh, sort of polarizing positions that other people have staked out. And I think um, 
Joseph Smith is attempting to do so in, in 1836. I, the interesting thing is that um, almost every Protestant denomination in the 19th century also speaks out against uh, the radical abolitionists and against amalgamation. So they're all speaking out. So um, Presbyterians, Methodists, even the Quakers denounce radical abolitionists. Uh, Quakers are in favor of gradual emancipation. Um, they're against slavery, right? But what's the process for doing it? And they are also fearful of the anti, the immediate um, abolitionists and the anti-abolitionist backlash. And they also come out against immediate abolitionism. So uh, it situates, you know, Joseph Smith, I think, within a bigger context where religious leaders are fearful of the immediate uh, abolitionist movement, and Joseph Smith is right on um, with the rest of those religious groups. Um, Joseph Smith actually stakes out um, a really open kind of perspective in terms of who's allowed within Mormonism and to become a preacher within Mormonism. You have the Methodists, the Pre uh, Presbyterians, and the Baptists will either split or experience schisms over those questions. Mormonism actually allows white slaveholders and black slaves to be baptized and into their religious kingdom. Abolitionists and anti-abolitionists, they are casting a wide net uh, in terms of who they are accepting within the bounds of Mormonism. Those questions are causing schisms or splits within Methodism and um, Presbyterians and, and Baptists. Since you mentioned the split, especially with Methodism, I, I served a mission in South Carolina, so I was very familiar with the AME churches. Are they a result? AME stands for African Methodist Episcopal, and I always thought, how do they get the Methodist Episcopal together? But is that a result of these schisms you're talking about, where the, the, the black Methodists went to the AME churches and the whites stayed as, as regular Methodists? So um, I wish I was more up to speed on um, all the various different um, uh, groups. I don't think that uh, AME is actually a result of this split, but the Southern Methodists are a result of this split. There's a split between Southern and Northern Methodists. Southern Baptists are a result of the split. And then there's a schism in the Presbyterian. So Southern Methodists are white and Southern Baptists are white? And well, it's, it's how just... Does that, it, how does that work? No, it's just a question of um, will you allow slaveholders as preachers or as missionaries or in, um, in, in your kind of ordination. Um, and Southerners were, Southern Baptists, for example, were arguing, yeah, of course we will. And Northern Baptists were saying, no, they should oh. be forbidden. Right? So this so, wasn't a racial division so much as just no. what's your position? Right, what's your position on the questions of the day vis-a-vis -vis slavery? Okay. Right? And who are you going to allow to be a missionary or a preacher? Can a, uh, a slaveholder become one of uh, a preacher in, in, in your uh, group? And Southerners said, yeah, of course they should be allowed to. And Northerners rejected that, and it caused a, splism, uh, a split. Uh, Southern so, Baptists. So it was a split amongst the whites, not a white versus a black. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, based on questions about slavery, right, um, and, and racial issues, um, you know, segregation uh, within these churches was, was par for the course, um, that if you're going to allow slaves, they're going to have uh, segregated worship. Um, more often than not, that's, you know, what would lead to them forming their own congregations.
so the AME, um, for their own worship purposes, right? Because they're not uh, allowed full equality a lot of times within the mainstream churches. So Mormonism av avoids um, that split altogether simply by casting a wide net and allowing black slaves, uh, white slave masters, free blacks, um, former slaves, uh, abolitionists, anti-abolitionists. These are the political positions of the day, right, that at least initially were independent of their Mormonism. But eventually, um, those questions will also have to be resolved within the fold, and that takes place in 1852 in Utah Territory. Hmm. So that's, that's so interesting to me. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Nauvoo. I know there was a letter written in the 1840s uh, where uh, I believe it was the city council, although correct me if I'm wrong, that welcomed the Mohammedans, or what we would today call Muslims. Um, you know, as you talked about that, it seems like Mormons were very accepting of all people, uh, blacks, whites, slave owners, non-slave owners. So that was another reason why the the rest of white America didn't like Mormons. But talk about how accepting uh, Mormons were, especially of Muslims and, and blacks and even Indians and Chinese. Right. Yeah, so that, w that was one of the things that caused the Mormons problems, uh, especially in the first 20 years or so of Mormonism. Um, they were branded as being too accepting of people that the rest of white America knew should be segregated or even enslaved. So accusations leveled against them, um, 1830s up through the 1840s. Um, they have opened an asylum for rogues and vagabonds and freed blacks. Uh, they are walking uh, missionaries preaching in the South were accused of um, conspiring with Indians and walking out with colored women. Uh, in Missouri, they were charged with actually promoting black ascendancy over whites, that they would elevate even whites, uh, or excuse me, blacks ab uh, above whites. Um, that's how open they were. Uh, there's actually um, a British officer, uh, Edward Strutt Abdi, who's on tour of the United States in the 1830s um, from Britain. He's, he's here to study um, uh, American institutions, and he returns back to Britain and he writes a three volume. Uh, book about his journey in America. And in this three-volume book, he actually says he comes across a copy of the Book of Mormon produced by this new religious sect in America. And he reads it. And he actually points out um, the verses in Second, Second Nephi 26, where it says, all are alike unto God, black and white. And he said, Mormons have this radical vision of racial equality. And it's going to get them in trouble, especially in the state of Missouri. That's how radical their vision is. And he points to the Book of Mormon as evidence of this and says they're not going to last long because of their open racial vision. So those are the accusations leveled against them by outsiders. That's one of the things I tried to do in the book was um, a lot of times a Mormon racial story has been told only from the inside perspective. And I was interested in, well, what are outsiders saying about who Mormons are and how uh, they behave racially? And it was really fascinating to then come across these accusations being leveled against the Mormons that they are too open and too inviting of all people. 
Um, and like you mentioned then in Nauvoo, when they write uh, their vision of religious equality, uh, they, they simply say, everyone's wil- welcome to worship in Nauvoo. We, ha- we don't discriminate. Uh, there's no religious discrimination. And there's a whole long list of Christian denominations that are welcome in Nauvoo. The only non-Christian um, group mentioned were Muslims. And they simply say, yeah, and we welcome Muslims here as well. Right? So um, Joseph Smith was branded as uh, an American Muhammad very early on in his religious career. And yet he is open and accepting of Muslims into his religious community in, in Nauvoo and simply says uh, religious freedom uh, should be for everyone. An attack against religious liberty uh, against one group is an attack against all groups. And so we should be at the forefront of defending religious freedom and religious liberty. That's cool. So um, in your book, you also t- I, th- I think you spend a chapter both on Native Americans as well as on Chinese. Can you talk about some of the, the comments, I guess, from outsiders that, were, that had problems with, with those two groups? Sure. So obviously Mormons have um, a bit of a theological um, distinct understanding of who Native Americans are, um, fallen descendants of ancient Israel. Uh, Mormonism is founded in 1830, the same year that the United States passes the Indian Removal Act, which simply stipulates that Native Americans um, east of the Mississippi are to be rounded up and removed to Indian country designated west of the Mississippi. That's supposed to solve the Indian problem, um, simply uh, round them up, get them out of the way of white settlement and let whites simply fill in in the land where the Native Americans had been living. Uh, So that's what's going on in the U.S. And then Mormonism comes along and says, well, we have a new book of scripture and it purports to be a history of this group of people. They actually have a divine destiny. And this is not set well with a lot of the American population. Um, So Mormons will be accused of conspiring with Indians against true white Americans, uh, with intermarriage amongst them, which they in fact do engage in. Uh, They have no problem uh, about intermarrying amongst Indians. And by the time they arrive in Utah Territory um, or the Gray Basin, um, Brigham Young will actually encourage uh, missionaries amongst Native Americans to take Native American wives. Um, But the earliest interracial marriage uh, that historians are aware of is actually a Native American man and a white woman in in Nauvoo, sealed uh, together in in Nauvoo. So uh, very open in terms of their attitude and actually see a divine destiny for Native Americans and actually believe that Native Americans are going to convert um, in mass to Mormonism and join with Mormons um, in ushering in the millennium now really naive in their um, vision of this kind of way that they perceive Native Americans to embrace um, their message because it never happens the way that they had hoped. But nonetheless, they do uh, have this vision of um, uniting with with Native Americans um, and uh, sort of strength in these sort of marginalized groups coming together. Uh, But in the minds of outsiders, that's just evidence that Mormons are attempting to conspire with Native Americans to wipe out the rest of white America. And so there are all kinds of really heightened kind of rumors that circulate. Um, 
Mormons have thousands of Indians at their behest. They're just the Indians are just waiting for the signal from their Mormon overlords to go on the war path and wipe out the rest of us. And um, so the way that it plays out, I mean, Mormons are sometimes then um, branded as more savage than the savages. They're described sometimes as white Indians, white people who have actually given themselves over to savagery. And because uh, you have you know, denied your racial identity, you actually sink to a level of depravity worse than the Native Americans was the argument. And so Mormons become worse than uh, the Indians who they go to live amongst um, some of the uh, accusations leveled against them. Hmm. And then you had a, a chapter, I know, on the Chinese. I guess the Chinese helped build the railroad. And at first, it seems like Mormons embraced the Chinese and then I believe it was the 1880s or so, they said, well, we want to become more white, so we'll, we'll push the Chinese away. I wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, so um, Mormons are also conflated with uh, Asians, um, Muslims, Turks, Chinese, uh, and the fear was that Mormons represent um, an, uh, a second oriental problem on American soil. Uh, so some actually argue that Mormons will combine with uh, the Chinese immigrants, and you have them mixing together and creating this, uh, once again, uh, oriental problem that shines in the face of democracy, right? Democracy is for the white race. The yellow horde isn't capable of democracy. Mormons are a version of orientalism because they're practicing polygamy. They're giving their free will over to despots. Um, uh, in all of those ways, the argument was that they're more like Chinese than they are like white Americans, like Anglo-Saxons, and therefore they are suspect. Uh, the same Congress that passes the Chinese Exclusion Act, Act also passes the Edmonds Act. And newspapers across the nation argue that America has now solved both Oriental problems. Uh, some of them say, well, the Chinese should be allowed to stay, but the Mormons are the ones that should go. Uh, so they are conflated in editorials across the nation with the Chinese problem. There's the Mormon problem and there's a the Chinese problem and we're trying to solve both Oriental problems at once. Okay, so just to, some people might not be familiar with the Edmonds Act. Can you talk about what is, what was the Edmonds, what was the Edmonds Act? The Edmonds Act uh, was a piece of legislation passed in 1882, like I said, the same Congress that passes the Chinese Exclusion Act and, the, and they are debating these within a few weeks of each other, uh, which uh, defines a new uh, crime, uh, unlawful cohabitation. Uh, so the problem up to this point legally, um, at least in the mind of Congress, was that um, they had outlawed polygamy in 1862, but were not very successful in actually convicting anyone because it's very difficult to prove that a plural marriage has taken place. Mormons aren't leaving paperwork hanging around, and so how do you actually prove that there has been a plural marriage that has happened? Uh, so Congress in 1882 simply defines a new crime, unlawful cohabitation. No longer uh, then do you have to prove that a marriage has taken place, you just simply have to prove that a man has unlawfully cohabited with more than one woman. And that will lead to the conviction of over a thousand men and some women um, and really ratchets up the pressure on, on the Mormons. And so uh, that law, uh, passed really quickly uh, um, in 
conjunction with the Chinese uh, Exclusion Act leads to these conflations of, of solving both Oriental problems. And so cohabitation is just a euphemism for sex, right? Yeah, or I mean, you didn't have to prove that sex had happened. I mean, if, if a man um, spends the night with one wife, um, so the marshals might hang out uh, side of wife number one's house, and then the next night with, uh, or another time with another wife, that's cohabiting. Um, they didn't have to see um, sexual relations happening. Um, they're just simply they just simply have to prove that they're cohabiting. Now, the Mormon response to this is, well, are, are the marshals following our good senators and congressmen around and finding out, following uh, who they're cohabiting with? Right? Um, is this being applied equally? And obviously, the answer is no. It's being applied um, exclusively towards the Mormons. But nonetheless, that opens up. Uh, for the prosecution uh, of and conviction of, of Mormons under the unlawful cohabitation. Huh, that's interesting. So, yeah. so adultery was just fine as long as you were not, not Mormon. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. All right. So, in terms of Mormon attitudes towards Asians, I mean, that was a part of your question. Um, so, uh, very early on, uh, I mean, Brigham Young sends missionaries to, to China. I, there's simply a desire to convert them. There's no kind of um, racial restriction. They're also welcomed in. Uh, the problem is they just don't have much success, uh, very little success, um, and, and the mission to China um, runs into the Taiping Rebellion, so there's political turmoil going on, and the missionaries themselves complain. There's the language barrier. There's no one that wants to listen to them. They return rather quickly. There are some um, converts in Hawaii and also some proselyting efforts amongst uh, Chinese immigrants in California. Um, by the 1880s, when you have uh, the, the actual Chinese presence in Utah, Mormons don't really make an effort to missionize amongst them when they're right here. Um, and I think by that point, um, they're fully aware of the way that they've been conflated with the Chinese, and I think there's more this effort at claiming whiteness for themselves, and sometimes that means distancing themselves from the other suspect groups to make the distinction because outsiders are making the conflation, so Mormons attempt to create distance. So do you know uh, when approximately that time was where they went from embracing you know, other religious and ethnic minorities to pushing them away? Is there yeah, it's, it's sort of just gradual across the course of the 19th century. I mean, um, the most evidence is with, uh, with blacks, um, and so they, uh, you know, at least two black men are ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood uh, in the first couple of decades of Mormonism. And then you see sort of that deterioration across the course of the 19th century um, in fits and starts, right? So Brigham Young first openly articulates a race-based priesthood restriction in 1852, but um, I don't uh, believe it's really actually lockstep in place until 1908 uh, with Joseph F. Smith. Um, and you have a lot of intervening kind of events that it takes on a life of its own, accumulates um, precedent, and each succeeding leadership uh, group not willing to violate the precedent established by the previous group, even though Brigham Young's position is a violation of the precedent that Joseph Smith established of open priesthood ordination. Um, but after Brigham Young um, articulates a race-based priesthood restriction, and then it grows into a race-based temple restriction, uh, you know, the, le the um, leadership by the 1880s, they're 
remembering back, well, I remember Brigham Young said this, and some actually saying, well, I think Joseph Smith said it, um, or it began with Joseph Smith. Um, and the last brick, I think, is in place in 1908 when the black priesthood holders are erased from collective Mormon memory. Joseph F. Smith, in a 1908 meeting, will simply say that Joseph Smith himself declared Elijah Abel, a black priesthood holder's um, ordination, null and void himself. There's no evidence that that's true, but he's falsely remembering back in 1908, and so once you have that as the new memory, like you've erased the black priesthood holders from collective Mormon memory, and the new memory moving forward then is that this restriction has always been in place. It was there from the beginning. Joseph Smith began it. We can't do anything about it. It's going to take a revelation to get rid of it. And I think that transition takes place in 1908. Mm. That very same meeting, Joseph, Joseph F. Smith will say that missionaries should no longer proselyte amongst black people that if they want to get baptized, um, it's going to be of their own volition, but missionaries shouldn't actively go out um, seeking converts amongst them, uh, which is absolutely a very different perspective than animated the early years of Mormonism, where missionaries were preaching um, in all groups. So there's a letter from um, the president of the Northern States Mission in the 19-teens, I can't remember the exact year, uh, and it simply says, well, we have um, three black families in the Northern States Mission. There's one in Wisconsin, there's one in Indiana, there's one in Minnesota. The problem is when um, our missionaries bring white investigators to these congregations, they are repelled. They say that we don't want to worship with black people. And so I've instructed my missionaries to stop proselyting in black neighborhoods. So that's how Mormonism becomes known and branded as a white church, right? Um, they stop actively um, proselyting amongst black people because by that point, remember, the Supreme Court has put its stamp of approval on segregation, on separate but equal. And you have white investigators showing up to these congregations, seeing black families, and they're saying, oh, those people should be segregated. We don't want to worship with them. And it's deemed by the mission president in the Northern States Mission as too problematic. So his solution is, well, he tells his missionaries stop proselyting in black neighborhoods. Hmm. That's interesting. I've had a debate with a few other people about when did the ban actually start. I, um, so interesting, you, you've taken the opposite position of me. Uh, to me, it looks like, from my research, it looks like the last person ordained uh, last black man ordained was 1846, uh, Warner McCary in Nauvoo. Uh, I believe it was Orson Pratt or Orson Hyde, I don't remember. But no one was ordained after that. Um, and so I guess you could call that period from 1846 to 1908 as kind of a de facto ban, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I actually did want to get into 1852 as well sure, um, as we talk sure. about that. But, I mean, w would you agree that, yeah, there was kind of a de facto ban? Because Warner McCary, boy, he was, he was a colorful person. Maybe you could talk a little bit about him. Sure. Yeah, so, um, you know, to be clear, what, what I'm saying is, um, uh, you know, they aren't actively ordaining black men to their priesthood, at least as much as they are aware. Um, 
during that time period, but um, it's still not completely solidified in my estimation, like the last brick in this wall of racial restriction. So I see it accumulating bricks right across the course of the 19th century. The last brick is 1908, when you erase from collective Mormon memory Elijah Abel as a black priesthood holder. Um, so there's a meeting in 1879 when Elijah Abel appeals to be sealed to his wife and to have his endowment. And so I suggest then in the book, um, it, which touches off an investigation, John Taylor, who's then the leader of Mormonism, leads this investigation. So if the racial restriction is unambiguously in place as late as 1879, why do you need to have an investigation? If it's completely understood and everyone's on board, why investigate? And that's 1879. So as late as 1879, there are questions about what do we do when Elijah Abel wants to uh, be sealed to his wife and, and get his endowment. Uh, and Joseph F. Smith is sent to uh, meet with Elijah Abel in 1879 and comes back to report that Abel has produced priesthood certificates and says that Joseph Smith himself sanctioned his priesthood. And Joseph F. Smith um, reports that in that meeting. Um, and the decision is that they will allow his priesthood to stand, but not allow him temple admission. And so you have then this accumulating precedent and um, really then the beginning of the the temple restriction, right, um, that grows out of this priesthood ban. Um, but Abel goes on another mission, right, and dies with his priesthood intact. And his son and grandson are also ordained, and so there are exceptions. Um, so, do you, do you know when his son and grandson were ordained? Approximately what years? Yeah, so I think the son, uh, you know, it's in the book. I think the son is the nineteen teens. I think it's nineteen twelve, and then the grandson is nineteen thirty-five. Both. So, both of them in Logan. So even after the final brick, yes. we still have some exceptions. That's, That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And in 1907, the First Presidency puts um, the one-drop rule into play, which simply stipulates that anyone with one drop of African ancestry cannot hold a priesthood or be admitted into the temple. Um, and that typical of what's going on in the nation. So states like Virginia are adopting the one-drop rule to define legally who is black and who's white. And Virginia says if you have one drop of black ancestry, then according to the law in the state of Virginia, you are legally black. You can have a hundred white ancestors and one black ancestor, and you would still be defined as legally black. And the same thing then that the First Presidency articulates in 1907 for priesthood and temple uh, admission is a one-drop policy. So that's a policy impossible to enforce. We know now, especially with DNA. And so there are all kinds of exceptions. If the one-drop rule is the standard, all kinds of exceptions that make it through uh, you know, a wall that becomes you know, impossible to police. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I want to jump back to, uh, well, 1840s, 1850s time period. Um, you gave a, a presentation at Mormon History Association a year or two ago, I don't remember when, with, I think it was Lugene Carruth mm -hmm. and Charles Christopher Rich. Christopher Rich. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that was a fascinating presentation. And 
I have to tell you that following that presentation, I became a fanboy of Orson Pratt. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is one of the not well-told stories uh, of his opposition to Brigham Young concerning slavery and, and uh, even black voting, which I think would blow most people's minds. Um, so kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, Maybe maybe we'll set this up. Um, in some research that I've done on uh, Warner McCary, so as I understand it, Warner was, uh, well, he claimed to be part Indian, but most people, I believe, thought he was black. He actually married uh, the state president's daughter. Uh, Lucy Stanton. Lucy Stanton. Yeah. And I believe it was Orson I think it's Hyde Orson or Hyde. Yeah, Orson Hyde married them as an apostle. So there, there didn't, you know, I guess, the, so Warren McCary is interesting because he claimed to be, I believe it was Choctaw Indian, and he, the, he was known as the Lamanite prophet. And so he, on the one hand, has this blessed Israelite heritage, or at least it was believed that wasn't true. But on the other hand, a lot of people thought he was black. So, you know, you've talked a little bit about amalgamation and how interracial marriage wasn't a problem. You know, Warner was a really interesting person. So are, are you very familiar with that story? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Okay. Um, you want me to kind of go yeah, go yeah, talk about it? Well, um, so um, I'm not completely convinced that that Warner is or, or ordained to the priesthood. And I know some people have suggested that that he is. Um, the only um, the only evidence is um, coming from well outside of anyone who would have been close to what happens, the suggestion is, I think that it is Orson Hyde um, who performs the marriage, um, never been able to verify that that marriage taking place at the hands of Orson Hyde being sealed or being ordained to the priesthood. So for me, there's still a bit of a question mark there, but regardless, they are present themselves as a married couple. Um, they're in winter quarters. Uh, and. Uh, McCary complains to Brigham Young that he's not being treated well because of his racial identity. And so this prompts the meeting uh, between McCary and Lucy Stanton, Brigham Young, and every present uh, member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. There are a couple of members who aren't there, but everyone who is at Winter Quarters and a member of the Quorum of the Twelve are in that meeting. So this is really an unprecedented kind of event. And the minutes of the meeting um, really kind of describe then uh, McCary in very rambling statements trying to ferret out his racial identity. He presents himself as um, a Native American, but like you said, um, the accusation amongst Mormons and Winter Quarters is that he's black. And in fact, as best as, as historians can tell, um, he's he's black. He's he's a former slave, um, and uh, has this long interview. He also says that um, he's Adam, the Ancient of Days, and he's missing a rib. And so Willard Richards, in this meeting, kind of examines his body, looks for the missing rib, and reports that there's no rib missing. Everything seems to be in place, and. Brigham Young um, comes out as McCary is complaining and he's saying, um, you know, I'm not being treated well. It's because of my racial identity. Um, some people call me, um, you know, the N-word and, uh, you know, 
what is it? Um, what does it matter if I'm Native American or um, African American or Adam the Ancient of Days? I should be treated well. And Brigham Young really tries to calm him and um, simply says, um, we don't care about the color. And he actually refers to Q. Walker Lewis, who is uh, another black priesthood holder in Lowe, Massachusetts. And he says, he cites him as evidence that Mormons don't care about the color. We have a, um, uh, a fine elder, an African in Lowell, Massachusetts, he says to McCary in that interview, citing him as evidence that Mormons don't discriminate in terms of priest ordination. Um, and so Brigham Young is on record in March of 1847 as favorably aware of a black priesthood holder. That's why I think that meeting is so important. Um, but Brigham Young will leave winter quarters. Um, they seem to resolve. McCary leaves the meeting feeling fine about things. But um, Brigham Young then leads group into the Great Basin. McCary stays behind in winter quarters and actually starts a, a schismatic group of his own. He's attracting followers um, and performing sealings uh, to white women in a sexualized ritual that comes to the attention of Parley Pratt, um, who's at Winter Quarters, and, and Pratt will speak out against McCary, and eventually McCary and his followers will be excommunicated. McCary and Lucy Stanton will leave Mormonism um, and actually reinvent themselves as Native American performers, and they perform in all kinds of uh, population centers on the East. Uh, he describes himself as um, a Native American prophet and her as um, his Native American wife, even though she's white. A Delaware princess. A Delaware princess, right? Um, to large audiences, they can never fully escape their, their racial background. They eventually split. Um, Lucy Stanton will eventually make her way back to Utah Territory, um, Springville, and reunite with her family, but after like 20 years. So it's a pretty amazing story. Um, but um, Brigham Young will return from the Great Basin in 1847, and he is met with news of McCary's exploits and race mixing, and then also news that um, Enoch Lewis in the Low Massachusetts branch, who is um, Q. Walker Lewis's son, Enoch Lewis is black, married um, Mary Webster, a white member of the Low Massachusetts branch, and um, <clears throat> William Appleby, who had been appointed to survey the condition of the branches on the East Coast, uh, arrives in winter quarters and gives his report to Brigham Young. Did you know that we have an interracial couple in our branch in Low Massachusetts? And Appleby is clearly against race mixing. In his personal diary, he speaks out strongly against it. He records meeting them and said, I can't believe that they are members of my church and that we allow this in Mormonism. Uh, and so he meets with Brigham Young um, December 3rd, 1847, and gives his report. There are only 13 lines of that meeting that are recorded and they all center on race mixing, and Brigham Young speaks out strongly against race mixing, actually advocates um, capital punishment as um, the, the penalty. Um, but he doesn't ever mention priesthood, 
in the minutes, uh, at least in the surviving minutes. Like I said, the me the meeting goes on like four hours, and we got thirteen lines. Um, so it's really hard to know the full extent of the conversation, but what gets recorded uh, seems to center on Brigham Young. Okay, I've had enough. We've got McCary who were, was performing, you know, sexualized um, sealing rituals to white women, and then he's met with news of this interracial marriage in Lowell, Massachusetts, and he speaks out strongly against it. And I think, you know, that pushes him in a different direction. Okay, uh, I guess there's one other uh, important event that I just want to highlight a little bit. Are you familiar with Joseph Ball and what happened in Massachusetts as well? Yeah, so um, I'm also kind of... Um, suspicious uh, of uh, uh, Joseph Ball's racial identity. Um, so I've not seen any documents that describe him as black. And so um, I like to do some more research on him to try to ferret that out. Um, not quite sure what to make of, of Joseph Ball yet. Oh. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I know that other people have um, written about Joseph Ball as um, you know first black high priest and leader in in Massachusetts, and and I'm just kind of waiting to get a chance to try to research that a little bit more and figure out what's going on because um, it's just odd to me that those who are visiting aren't describing him as black. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I guess it's my understanding, you know, that that he he was the, the first black high priest and served as branch president there, and I believe it was in Kew Walker Lewis, Lewis's same branch. Is that right? Um, yeah, I, I, it was it was Boston, and so I'm I'm not sure if it's the same branch or not. It may have been. Um, I'd have to check that out um, to make sure. Yeah, that's my understanding. But uh, you know, there was some issues with the branch there with William Smith. Uh, do you, do you, are you familiar with that story? Well, um, just maybe the basics, but William Smith, um, who is an apostle, is going to the low Massachusetts and uh, in, engaging in um, extramarital sexual exploits. Um, and, um, you know, so there's some question about his behavior there and how that kind of impacts his increasingly erratic behavior and his eventual split from Mormonism. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's go back. So, you know, we've got Warner McCary doing some sexualized sealing women uh, rituals with white women. We've got uh, Enoch Lewis with his mixed race child. Um, I, I've all, I've kind of wondered. It seems like this is about the time where Brigham, who in 1846 was impressed with Walker Lewis back in Boston. Um, and then in 1852, as he's uh, explaining about slavery, which I want to talk a little bit about slavery being legalized in Utah, um, that's where he talks about one drop, as I recall. Are, are you familiar? Is that, am, I, am I telling it right? Well, um, Wilfred, if, if you go with Wilfred Woodruff's um, very truncated um, attempt at capturing Brigham Young's speech, in his journal, then Woodruff will insert the language of one drop into Brigham Young's speech. But if you go with uh, George Watt, who captures a speech in Pittman shorthand, George Watt does not have Brigham Young using the one drop language. Oh, that's, that's an important distinction. I, yeah. I, and I know you've warned me about that before, yeah. but I still have a problem with that. Yeah. 
so, um, so, so for the book, I, I was able to get get back to the um, Pittman shorthand version of Brigham Young's speeches for the legislative session, and um, I believe that um, we shouldn't rely upon Woodruff's very shortened, truncated version. Um, so, you know, uh, I mean, imagine kind of capturing our conversation, trying to capture it in longhand versus um, a court stenographer, um, you know, trying to capture it. Um, and Pittman Shorthand isn't as precise as a court stenographer, but nonetheless more precise than trying to capture it in longhand. And, and Woodruff captures around 800 words, um, and Watt captures something like 2,400 words, and so three times as many. Um, and I think um, much more precise in capturing what Brigham Young is saying, and, and Watt does not include the language of, of one drop. And so um, in the um, documentary history that we're producing, going to try to make the case that scholars should rely upon the Watt version over hmm. the Woodruff version. I, I can't tell you how excited I am to see, the, see that book. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about um, slavery in Utah. Um, so you've got this debate in 1950-51, I believe, in the Utah legislature about um, whether we should allow slavery in Utah. I believe Charles Rich, one of the apostles, had some slaves. Um, so obviously there were some some apostles who wanted to do slavery, but you have Orson Pratt, um, who he didn't seem like he was he was in favor of that. So can you talk a little bit about that debate and and how how it turned out? Sure. So uh, Orson Pratt gives a speech in opposition to the uh, what comes to be called the Servant Code that's being debated by the the legislature in 1852. Uh, what laws will govern? the black slaves who have been brought to Utah Territory by their white slave masters. That's what they're trying to determine in the 52 legislative session. And um, in doing research for the book, um, uh, uh, came across then these speeches that had never been transcribed from Pittman shorthand and so haven't been a part of the historical record as historians have written about uh, these events in the past. And the LDS Church History Library was kind enough to have Lejean Carruth transcribe them and allow me to use them in, in the research for the book. Uh, so Orson Pratt gives a speech uh, where he simply speaks out very strongly against uh, the bill that the legislature is debating. Uh, he speaks out strongly against slavery. He says if Utah, if the Utah Territory legalizes slavery, it will put a black mark on uh, the territory. Um, a variety of countries were uh, emancipating their slaves, um, outlying slavery. Uh, the British Empire had already done so, obviously the U.S. had not. But Pratt said this will harm our missionary efforts when we go abroad. If people become aware that as uh, countries uh, are getting rid of slavery, we're legalizing it. Um, he says we should reject the bill outright. Um, and says that if Utah Territory does this, the angels in heaven will blush. Um, he's very s strong in his notion of why this is wrong. 
he argues that curses are not multi-generational. So God may very well curse a people, but uh, it's only that people. It doesn't pass down from generation to generation. Uh, so he's rejecting the notion of a multi-generational curse that might impact, uh, you know, if if you know black people truly are the descendants of Cain. Um, that doesn't matter to Orson Pratt because curses are not multi-generational. It would only apply to the generation that God cursed, not to however many generations later. So it's a very singular kind of position that he stakes out in Mormonism, and ultimately he doesn't win the day, but he is speaking out against Brigham Young, and they are butting heads in that legislative session. Um, And uh, I think they butt heads again um, over the election bill. So the election bill is also being debated that legislative session. And uh, we know that Orson Pratt speaks on uh, February 4th because the evidence um, within one of Brigham Young's speeches tells us that he does, but unfortunately that speech is not recorded. I'd love to know what Orson Pratt says on February 4th. Um, because Brigham Young will say in Fe- on February 4th, no one got up to speak until Pratt got up to speak, and he only got up to speak to stick his thumb into me. Okay, So we know that Pratt spoke on February 4th, and we know that he's aiming at Brigham Young, because Brigham Young tells us <laughs> that that's the case. Um, then Brigham Young, um, and they're debating the election bill. Um, who's going to be able to vote in yeah. Utah Territory. Let me just introduce for a second. So Brigham Young at the time was serving as governor of Utah. What was Pratt's position? Pratt was, uh, so Brigham Young is serving as prophet as well as governor, and Pratt is serving as apostle as well as legislator. Okay. So you have these obviously mixed roles um, taking place. Um, and they're butting heads. The butted heads before, they'll butt heads again, but um, they're um, uh, diametrically opposed um, in this legislative session. And uh, Brigham Young um, will give a speech uh, the morning of 5th of February, and it's his most fully articulated uh, race-based priesthood restriction. But it also is really helpful to know that he's... uh, arguing about the election bill, because within that race-based priesthood restriction, he's simply saying, uh, blacks will not rule over me in Utah territory, okay, so we're not going to give them the right to vote, and they will not rule over me in this church, we're not going to give them the priesthood. So those are the positions that he's staking out, and um, I really believe that he is speaking um, in opposition to Orson Pratt's speech February 4th, the day before. We don't have the speech, but when Brigham Young says in his 5th of February speech, if no other prophet said it before now, I say it, black people are the descendants of old Cain and are barred from the priesthood. He actually says, he's striking out on his own, that if no other prophet said it before, I'm saying it now. Right? So I am starting a new trajectory. Right, I am distinguishing myself. And when I hear him say that, I imagine Orson Pratt the day before saying, no other prophet said this before. 
And this is Brigham Young's response. Well, if no one ever said it before, I'm saying it now. Right? Um, that's the context. Obviously, I can't prove it because we don't have Pratt's speech, but um, I imagine that Brigham Young is obviously speaking to Pratt, and, and we know that in the context of the speech that, in fact, he is. I mean, we know that Pratt spoke uh, the, the day before and that they are in a heated debate. So um, how does Pratt push back? So the minutes of the legislature uh, tell us that that afternoon of February 5th, after Brigham Young has given this very strong speech, uh, there are two bills that are introduced that are just innocuous bills, like who cares? Um, it's the Cedar City and Fillmore municipal bills, where they're just approving them as legal municipal entities. Um, but within the bills are the voting rights for Fillmore and Cedar City. Who gets to vote in Fillmore and Cedar City? And they stipulate that white men over 21 get to vote. And that's par for the course for the nation in 1852. Pratt votes against both of those bills. And the minutes tell us that he does so because they don't allow black men to vote. And uh, I believe that's his effort at, again, pushing back against Brigham Young. So Brigham Young got to have his say in the morning, and this is Pratt's way of responding. I'm going to vote against these two municipal bills to make my point that I believe black men should be allowed to vote in Utah Territory. No, to me, that is absolutely astonishing, because this is, this is the year 1852. This is pre-Civil War. That's right. I mean, how did Pratt fit in with the rest of America as far as a black man should be allowed to vote? Because yeah. I can't imagine that was a popular position. It's really not. Um, I mean, there are a few people who are arguing for this, um, you know, radical abolitionists. Um, but like I said, this is just a radical minority. To stake out that kind of position, you would be branded as a radical minority, marginalized um, from the mainstream. Um, it really is uh, kind of a distinct position, and for him to be making it in, in Utah Territory um, really is quite unique for 1852. Um, not many are advocating for black suffrage um, in 1852. I mean, when when did blacks, were, were they allowed to vote? Well, so remember you have um, the, the 15th Amendment, um, which is passed following the Civil War, and I don't remember, <laughs> that's going to make me look bad, <laughs> I don't remember uh, what year that's actually ratified, but it's one of the three amendments that come out of the Civil War. The 13th Amendment uh, eradicates slavery, 14th Amendment is civil rights, and then the 15th Amendment is, is black suffrage. Um, but you know, it's so eighteen sixties, eighteen seventy. Yeah, I mean, that's good enough. For exactly. Yeah. Yep. But even still, blacks still have the problem with voting because we still have the nineteen sixty two Voting Rights Act. So right. can can you just fill me in there? What, what was going on in that eighty years or whatever? Sure. So uh, you know, um, Reconstruction. Uh, how do you put the nation back together? Um, sort of dominates American politics after the Civil War, and you have radical Republicans in Congress who are in favor of black suffrage, and that is finally passed with with the Fifteenth Amendment. And there is a period of time where blacks enjoy that right to vote, um, and you have the first black senators elected to the United States Senate during that Reconstruction period. But then there's going to be the backlash in the South. 
uh, the reassertion of white supremacy. And the KKK becomes really the paramilitary arm of the Democratic Party. And if you vote the Republican ticket, you can, you're subject to intimidation by the KKK, you're subject to violence and subject to death, especially black people. And so in essence, uh, the KKK and then black codes that start to be written, um, poll taxes, a variety of ways, literacy tests that start to be incorporated in the South, uh, strip that right away from blacks in the South. Um, and so you have Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, black codes being written across the South. Uh, obviously, um, federal troops are all withdrawn from the South in 1877. And so uh, as historians, we see that as the end of the Reconstruction era. And when the troops are gone, you have no one left to enforce the laws that have been passed. And so Southern whites just simply regain white supremacy, regain control, segregate blacks, and uh, in every way possible, uh, strip rights that were granted to them as a result of the, the 14th and 15th Amendments, strip them from them. And you have the Supreme Court that puts its stamp of approval on that in Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. And so racial segregation then takes over, um, and therefore you need the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s and the Voting Rights Act and um, the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s as a result. Wow, that's great. Um, so going back to Orson Pratt, like I, I, I said there, uh, he, you know, I, I am just so amazed that in 1852 he's making such a, an amazing thing. As from what I understand, this speech has not been known until a year or two ago, is that correct? That's, that's correct. At least among historians. That's right, that's right. because. It it uh, it was George Watt never did transcribe it himself, and so it stayed in his papers only in Pittman shorthand form, and uh, you know there are a few people left on the planet that can read Pittman shorthand, and one of them works for the LDS Church History Library, Ellie Jean Carruth, um, and she's been going through a lot of these Pittman speeches and transcribing them, but it takes a long time. And it was only when I made a request um, for my book um, to see if there was a Pittman shorthand version of Brigham Young's speech, because I wanted to get as close to his original words as possible, um, that uh, it, it led to the discovery of these other speeches from the, from the legislative session. Wow. Yeah. So do you wish Orson Pratt was more well-known among modern Mormons? Well, of course, uh, for that speech, um, especially. I mean, obviously, you know, there may be some things that Orson Pratt didn't said that um, might cause us pause, but um, <laughs> certainly uh, the position that he stakes out in 1852, I wish w uh, that was more well known. And that really um, Brigham Young's position comes out of a debate, right? Um, debate with Orson Pratt. Um, over a legislative bill, right? This is not sort of a context that um, believing Latter-day Saints would suggest is conducive for a revelation, right? That Brigham Young is sort of uh, experiencing some sort of divine intervention here, but in fact he's engaging in a debate with a an apostle legislator. Uh, and he is articulating his most forceful position on a racial priesthood restriction in that debate. Yeah. I like I said, I'm just I'm just so amazed. I think that's one of the coolest episodes of Mormon history I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. 
Um, let's move on. I, I've already taken way more time than I said I was going to, but uh, just want to kind of finish up, bring us a little bit more to modern day. Um, I believe it was 2012, 2013, the LDS Church came out with a new race essay. Um, some think that it uh, went too far in blaming Brigham Young for the ban. Um, some people think it didn't go far enough, that it didn't apologize for the ban, or state, you know, state explicitly. It, it, it kind of hints at, well, there were a lot of other explanations, but just ignore them. They weren't, they weren't correct. But mm -hmm. they don't talk about what they were, the curse of Cain, curse of Ham. So where do you kind of fit on that, and what do you think? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, that it's probably, uh, well, I, I guess for me, uh, the LDS Church does not issue a major disavow that frequently. So uh, it disavows previous teachings. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. So in my estimation, it's a pretty big step. And it also includes the condemnation of all racism, uh, past and present, and that includes within Mormonism. So there's a condemnation of racism and a major disavowal of uh, black skin being a curse, of uh, interracial marriage as a sin, of uh, blacks or any other ethnic or racial group as being inferior in any sort of way whatsoever to, to anyone else. Um, and so in my estimation, those are really important steps forward. Um, and actually a major step forward. It was approved by the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, certainly, you know, um, some people would, would want more. Um, it stopped short of uh, arguing one way or the other as to if the racial restriction was uh, of divine origins or of human origins, but certainly um, gives the impression that it grew out of simply a racial culture, not out of divine origins. Um, and so, you know, all those things considered, I think it was a pretty um, dramatic step. I believe it was in the 1980s, 81 if I remember right, uh, Ronald Esplin, he's a church historian, came out with an essay kind of refuting um, Lester Bush's 1973 essay in which uh, Lester tried to pin the, uh, the beginnings of the ban about 1847, and it seems to be when Parley P. Pratt was speaking against Warner McCary. Um, so uh, Esplin tried to push it back to possibly some secret temple teachings. It seems, as I recall, there were some people that still want to try to pin the, the ban back on Joseph Smith. Uh, one, are you familiar with that, and, and, and uh, have you talked to Ron Esplin to see how he feels about that? I have not personally talked to Ron. I am familiar with his article. Um, I just uh, don't buy the argument uh, in the article. Uh, you know, seems to suggest that Brigham Young didn't do anything that um, Joseph Smith didn't uh, first do. And uh, you simply have to have evidence. And, and at least to date, there is no existing evidence of Joseph Smith articulating a race-based priesthood restriction or a race-based temple restriction. And in fact, the evidence suggests otherwise. Uh, Elijah Abel actually says that uh, Joseph Smith sanctions his priesthood. Um, he was ordained an elder. We don't know who ordained him an elder um, in, in March of 1836. Uh, but there is a certificate 
that survives with Joseph Smith's signature on it, uh, which defines um, Elijah Abel as an ordained minister, to, ordained and, and able to preach the Mormon gospel, um, and uh, articulates his priesthood as an elder. It's not his ordination certificate, but it is a certificate signed by Joseph Smith where Joseph Smith's signature is saying that, yes, this Elijah Abel is uh, a minister representing Mormonism, right? And Would that be similar to have a, a missionary card today that missionaries carry yes. around their ordained minister? Exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. Um, and, uh, you know, Elijah Abel, uh, when he's interviewed by uh, Joseph F. Smith in 1879, says, Joseph Smith sanctioned my priesthood. Um, so, uh, you know, the evidence is contrary, you know, to any suggestion that Joseph Smith began the priesthood restriction. So um, we have no statements by Joseph Smith articulating a race-based priesthood restriction. Um, so, you know, you, you just have to, uh, historians have to follow the evidence, and I just don't see the evidence. I mean, you, you can't sort of just simply surmise, in my estimation, that uh, Brigham Young never did anything that Joseph Smith didn't uh, at least uh, initiate at first. And the other um, point that's really important for me, at least, in putting the pieces together is that Brigham Young is on record in 1847 as favorably aware of Q. Walker Lewis's priesthood. And then in his speech on the 5th of February, 1852, he says, if no other prophet ever said it before me, I say it now where he's also seems to be striking out on his own. And so all of those together, in my estimation, uh, put the priesthood restriction um, at the feet of Brigham Young as, as beginning it, right? Um, we don't have evidence that Joseph Smith did, but we do have evidence uh, where Brigham Young is forcefully stating that he is the first prophet who's stating it. Hmm. Very good. Now, I want to ask you another question. I'm hoping you'll answer, but it's a little touchy, but I don't know. Um, I've heard rumors, and that's all they are is rumors, that you had uh, played a role in uh, compiling that essay. Do you have any response to that? <laughs> um, I, I did help with, with the essay. Oh, yeah. wow. Yes. So was that, can you describe your role? Um, well, the Church History Department invited me to write um, a, a an extended essay. Um, it ended up being about 55 pages long um, with footnotes and everything like I would produce as an academic essay. Um, and once they were satisfied with that, um, it was sent up the line um, several layers of kind of a approval process. Um, and then um, the church history department actually boiled down that longer essay to what got posted online. So I had no say over what got posted online, what eventually appeared as race and the priesthood, but it was a condensed version of the longer piece that I produced for them. Very much condensed. If it was 55 pages, yeah. now it's, what, three, four pages? I don't know. Yeah, I think it prints out at um, with the footnotes at like eight pages, eight pages. Um, uh, at LDS.org. But um, yeah, so um, 
very much very much condensed but um the fuller essay was was um sent up the line um and then it was out of my hands after that and they condensed it down to what what was was published at elias.org well that's cool that's very cool i'll have to get a copy of that 55 page (laughs) they have that in their control but um (laughs) actually you know the 55 pages are basically a boiled down version of the four chapters in the book oh okay yeah so the church history department was aware that i was doing research on this topic and um, invited me to participate um uh and um it's the 55 pages, like I said, are basically um, a condensed version of, of the four chapters, and um, I got to say whatever I wanted in, in the four chapters in the book because it's published by Oxford, and um, there are obviously no restrictions there. <laughs> so if you want sort of the full um, full version, you can look at those four chapters in the book. All right. Well, I, gotta, I, I have to tell you, I highly recommend that book. That's an awesome, awesome book. So Thank you. Well done. Do you think the church will ever apologize for uh, the ban? Um, I um, I doubt it. I'm kind of skeptical that that they will. Um, but you know, it's hard to predict the future and um, what the next generation of leadership might look like and how um, attitudes may may change over time. Um, but I don't see this generation of, of leaders um, apologizing. Um, the statement doesn't apologize, right? But it does disavow and it does condemn. Um, and I think that's probably as far as they were willing to go at this point. Cool. Um, I know some historians have likened the uh, ban on blacks to the current ban on gays. Um, within the church, um, do you do you see these as similar, or is there a significant difference? Well, um, I guess there are ways in which um, you could see them as similar, in ways in which I think they're distinct. So um, the similarities could be that, you know, um, is this simply sort of the cultural context, right, um, that is somehow seeping in, and it would be hard to argue that the the cultural context of you know, America moving towards legalizing gay marriage didn't impact Mormonism, right? And so um, it's Mormonism responding to its cultural context the same way that Mormonism seemed to respond to the racial context in in the 19th century. So parallels there, but um, I think also important distinctions. Um, So for race and... Uh, the priesthood, in particular, uh, there is an historical precedent, right? So black men were ordained to the priesthood in the early decades of Mormonism. And I'm not aware of a precedent for gay marriage in the early decades of Mormonism. Um, And then the other uh, important distinction is that... um, Black people in Mormonism were the only group prevented from having all of the saving rituals that Mormonism requires for, uh, you know, the Mormon heaven. Um, you can be gay and receive all the saving ordinances that Mormonism requires. 
Um, and so black people are the only group that I'm aware of that were ever prevented from actually receiving all the saving ordinances. So it's not the same kind of pressure point. Now I realize that uh, gay Latter-day Saints like gay marriage as uh, you know a, a part of that process, but nonetheless they're not barred from receiving the endowments, they're not barred from uh, you know temple participation like black people were. Um, black people were prevented from receiving all the saving ordinances. And the same thing for um, female priesthood ordination, right? You make the same kind of case that um, it's not necessary for saving ordinances, and so it's not the same kind of uh, issue as it was with, with Black Latter-day Saints who were only allowed to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, but prevented from receiving the other saving ordinances that Mormonism defines as necessary for exaltation. Uh, so that's the only case I'm aware of that uh, that comes into impact. Um, now, if we talk about the more recent um, marriage policy, we're talking about children of gay couples who are being prevented from those saving ordinances. So. There may be a new parallel there, right? Um, being prevented from having the saving ordinances, not of your own volition, but simply because your parents are in a gay marriage. And so that's the first time that I see us returning back, or Mormonism returning back to something that, that had, where they had prevented a group, uh, in this case, Black Latter-day Saints, from receiving all the saving ordinances, and now they're preventing, um, and not because of their own sins, right? Not because of worthiness, but because of Cain killing Abel. And in this case, once again, um, gay parents, uh, children of gay parents, not because of their own choices, but because of their parents' choices. So um, that is is a parallel that I see that wasn't in existence before the most recent um, policy came into play. Well, so that brings up another point. I know uh, immediately after the announcement, the November what, 2015 announcement, I believe it was, um, where they prevented uh, children of gay parents from being ordained or baptism or, or whatever. Um, I know a lot of people came out with the second article of faith, as Orson Pratt did in the legislature. Men should be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. I'll tell you what, I've had some debates online about, about whether, you know, does God punish, as Orson Pratt said, only this generation, or does he punish future or uh, future generations through not allowing ordinances? So, you know, some people say, well, God's cursed lots of people. You know, you can read the Bible, there's lots of curses in the Bible that are supposedly from God, or, you know, the prophets claim are from God. Mm -hmm. So how do you interpret it? I guess I'm putting your theological theologian hat on there yeah but what how do you how do you feel about that you know second especially with the regards to the second article of faith sure um, so my understanding of curse is not something that God distributes but in fact that uh, a person may curse themselves curse is a separation from God and it's through the person's actions and that that can be overcome simply through repentance uh, so I see that as how curses uh, are supposed to operate, right? That's not how Brigham Young articulated it, and Arson Pratt, as you note, um, pushes back against it. 
and I see it as a violation of, of the second article of faith. Absolutely. I see the position that Brigham Young staked out in 1852 as a violation of the second article of faith. He's holding all black people accountable for Cain's murder of Abel, something they did not participate in. Uh, that's a violation of the principle Joseph Smith establishes in the second article of faith. And I see then the November 5th uh, policy also as a violation of that second article of faith, uh, holding children of gay couples accountable for decisions they are not making themselves. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I absolutely do see it as, as a violation of the second article of faith. Great. Uh, one other parallel I just wanted to point out. You know, you, you mentioned the, the one-drop rule, that there were probably lots of people with more than one drop of blood who were ordained, but they looked white. Um, with the gays, <laughs> we've, you know, there have been lots of gays ordained, um, not openly. Um, you know, maybe they got married in the temple or whatever, um, got the priesthood as they should have done at certain ages, but then you know, came out as gay after and now have the priesthood. So it's kind of interesting to me that, that you know, it seems like we're, we're reverting back to the days of Brigham Young. We're trying to prevent this, but it's an impossible thing to prevent. I mean, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, a person even can be openly gay and, and, and hold the priesthood and be ordained to the priesthood um, as long as they're adhering to what the church articulates as its law of chastity. Right, um, so you can openly identify as gay and still be ordained to the priesthood, and so that's a, a way in which you know um, it's it's a distinction or a difference from how the racial priesthood restriction um, operated. Um, so, um, but but you're you're right. I mean, in terms of a person's sexual identity and if they're open about it or not open about it, and being ordained to the priesthood to happening um, regardless of of whether they're open or not open about it. Um, so it is you know like the one drop rule was impossible to police. Um, trying to police someone's sexual identity is probably also very problematic as well. All right. Okay. Well. I'm just going to ask you one last, one last question, and I'll let you go. So, you know, the Tabernacle Choir um, is going to be singing here at the inauguration of soon-to-be President Trump. Um, a lot of people, uh, I would, I would expect Orson Pratt probably wouldn't think that would be a good idea. <laughs> um, you know, what are your thoughts about? Uh, you know, Pre President Trump has been very vocal about race and not not in a way that I don't think Mormons are comfortable with. That he, he got the lowest vote total of any Republican in Utah in decades, probably since uh, Roosevelt, I believe, or maybe Johnson. But um, what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, the church sending the choir to, uh, to President Trump's inauguration? You're hitting all the hot button issues. You're not letting me off easy here. <laughs> I would prefer that the the Tabernacle Choir don't go. Um, I just think as much distance from Donald Trump as possible is a good thing. Uh, even if we were to talk about simple religious pluralism and religious freedom, it's a position that the church has staked out for itself. It is always strongly advocated for religious liberty, religious freedom, 
and we have a president who is arguing for a Muslim ban on immigration and uh, also suggested Muslim surveillance, um, a Muslim registry, uh, those type of things that are just absolutely shining in the face of religious liberty. And if that was the only principle that they wanted to stand on, I would love for them to stand on that principle. When Trump argued, when Trump first articulated uh, his position on a Muslim ban, the LDS newsroom did issue a statement um, where they cited Joseph Smith's uh, position in Nauvoo welcoming Muslims. Uh, and so they did speak out then, but um, the fact that the choir is going um, just seems like uh, you know too close an association with a president who has staked out positions on race, on religious liberty, um, uh, and his his actual attitudes towards women. Those kind of things just really kind of shine in the face of fundamental Mormon principles. So it's just a personal opinion. Um, I would rather they not go. Um, just stay as far away from Mormonism teaches, right? It's adherence, right? Stay away from the edge. <laughs> um, don't muddy the water. Um, you know, don't flirt with evil, those kind of things. And so, you know, for me, that's a principle um, that's at play here. I know other people have articulated other Mormon principles um, that they believe is at play and actually suggest that that's a reason for uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to perform. To me, um, it, it doesn't outweigh uh, the reasons not to perform. So my personal position is I wish they weren't going, but I don't get to make those decisions. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Like I said, I know I took way longer than I, than I told you I would. So it's been a pleasure. Um, I hope that you're open to another interview, uh, maybe a Mountain Meadows Massacre or some, you know, benign topic like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, we can cover uh, all the other hot button issues. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, once again, thank you, Paul Reeve. Uh, really appreciate your time here on Mormon Titans. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Paul Reeve. Paul, thank you for sitting down with me, and uh, it was just an amazing conversation. I can't wait until your new book comes out on the 1852 legislature. Um, looking forward to that. So thanks again, Paul. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.